0: Welcome to Making Comics, a podcast exploring the comics process from three different perspectives. I'm Scott Loss, the creator and artist of The Second Shift
1: and Wanderers of Melisanda for The Accidental Aliens. And I'm Keith Foster. I write the comic Kadoja and the upcoming comic Three Protectors. And today
0: we actually have a special guest. He is the creator of his comic series Power Knights, founder and owner of Kid Comics, current artist on Chaos Breaker from Vortex Comics, a 2020 Eisner judge and the founder and curator of Black Comics Day, first of its kind in San Diego, as an effort to engage the Black community in comics culture. Welcome, Keith and Jones. Thanks for having yeah. me.
1: <laughs> yeah, guest, guest yeah. time. Se- second guest ever, Keith. It's actually 2021 Eisner judge. 2021.
0: I'm sorry. Oh, that's my bad. Yeah, 2020 <laughs> was canceled. That's my fault yeah Yeah, do that but uh hey yeah i got most of it right right that's right (laughs) (laughs) all right man so uh the first thing we like to do on this podcast is we usually ask each other what we did this week creatively so uh keithan what'd you tackle today or this week i should say uh
2: pretty much same thing from last week it's a it's a just a continuous ball of work um as you mentioned, I'm I'm mostly working on Chaos Breaker. I'm the penciler for it for uh, Vortex uh, Media, which is, they're based up in Canada, and oh, okay. uh, they are actually a film company, a production company. So you might have seen some of their films uh, on some of these streaming services. Uh, but they, my capacity is the is basically. Um, uh, what you called? A jack of all trades for them, as far as the comic book thing. I'm doing the penciling, the inking, coloring, lettering, and pagination. When it's all when I'm done with doing
0: all of the uh the production stuff. So basically, the only thing you're not tackling is the writing. That's right, right. Okay. Uh, it's okay. written by Max Marks,
2: um, very talented writer. Uh, it's it's uh, it's the fantasy genre. Something. Uh, long lines of game of thrones except probably with a little more um more monsters and and magic in it okay Uh,
0: a little bit of sci-fi crossover so yeah that's what the vibe i get yeah yeah i get a touch of sci-fi like when i'm looking at the stuff you post online it looks it looks super awesome no thank you appreciate it uh and then um
2: I am also getting close to the show that, that I founded and curated, which is called uh, Black Comic Day, which is featured every February during Black History Month. And that show, um, I'm in the process of getting the artists registered that are going to be featured, uh, breaking down what you know the program itself, as far as what we're going, what type of uh, activities we're going to have, and all the do dates running the convention. And uh, uh, like you mentioned, I I brought that show around as a as a way to um, engage the black community in particular, but really anyone outside of comics in um, culture uh, to get in, uh, you know, start reading comics, uh, understand that it's made by people. <laughs> There's still a lot of people out there that think it's, you know, Walt Disney did everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, just putting the face. To the comics, and, and so people can see like, oh yeah, there's people that look just like you from your community that create these uh, some of your favorite characters, or or at least are part of the production team on some of these stuff that you see in the Marvel movies or the DC movies, and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's but it's also primarily um, independent creators yeah. uh, from the black community. And but the whole point is that, and I really want kids to have be exposed to this stuff because I would lose my mind if there was a show like this when I was a kid, you know. Right. I mean, I was freaked out when my dad took me to Comic-Con. I didn't even know those things were existing until he surprised me one day when I was like
0: 15. And I uh, only I only thought there was one. Like, I just knew about San Diego Comic-Con. and then, I didn't even know about San Diego. I lived here. I didn't even know about it. I knew about that one. And then one day, I, I, I don't know where I read it or where I saw it, but the Scottish Rights Center, which is a small convention center here in San Diego, um, it was, they were like, oh, there's going to be a comic convention at the Scottish Rite Center. And I'm like, what, there's another convention? And then, <laughs> so I went to it, but only knowing San Diego Comic-Con and how giant that is, I was like, whoa, this is really small. And like, I got dropped off there, you know, cause I was a kid and right. I'm like, I can legit do this in one hour and just be done. But it, it was still kind of cool checking it out and just- How did you find out about it well, initially? I Honestly, I can't remember. I think I read it somewhere. Wizard might have been around. You know, Wizard was around. So I more than likely saw it in, in one of those magazines because the internet wasn't up and
1: running mm-hmm. at that point. I remember in the 90s, that I would be on the internet, like message boards to sell comics and stuff like that. Right. So, I mean, I would, you know, I speculated in comics, I bought, you know, I've, I've talked about it before on the podcast where I'd buy 20 copies of this, 25 copies of that, sell it, buy it, do whatever, right. Part of it's collecting and part of it's selling. And, uh, and so it was just like classifieds, right? Like that's all the internet was before pictures. It was just like a, a classified section like a bulletin right. bbs right a bulletin board system and uh, and then you'd hear about conventions so i'd go to a convention it would be like at the at the hilton cherry hill you know and you'd be like yeah yeah, yeah. and then you go and it's like one one room of a of a con- like a ballroom of a hilton and there's like you know a grand total of 20 30 dealers and you can dig there for a while because it was all people just selling comics you know and or toys or whatever and you do that and you have a good time and i remember you know like i was on the east coast so i wasn't that you know tied closely to all of the um the san diego comic con but when it started to get nationwide um with like wizard world then there was wizard world philadelphia and that was the thing and it was like oh my god this is <laughs> 80 times bigger than anything i'm ever used right. to you know so yeah my exposure was kind of reversed Interesting. you say so you went to your first con in the 90s uh yeah late 90s late 90s oh okay same. So, that, so, okay, so it had gotten this feeding under itself by that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think the first big convention was Wizard World sometime in the early 2000s, if I remember right. I would have to look that up. Yeah. Um, but that's, I can, I can loosely date it in about a seven-year period for myself.
0: I think uh, mine was 91. 91 or 92. So it was before, I think my first convention was San Diego Comic-Con the year before Image or maybe even 2 years before image. And okay. like yeah, cuz mine is complete opposite. I've just been spoiled my whole life. Like but back in those days, you can just walk up and buy a badge that day. You can get you can get That's a right. four day, you know, yeah. and then it was always like, you know, cuz like we were like 10 bucks to get in. Well, yeah, like per day. Yeah, yeah. Like tw- 10 to 12 bucks, right? Yeah. And then like um, uh it was always the debate cuz we were, you know, teenagers, early teens, you know, 12, 13. So it was like Do you spend that 50 or 75 bucks to get the four day for the next year, or do you just buy it the next year and then pay the extra 25 bucks? You know, so right, yeah. With my experience,
2: like I said, uh, I go, I'm assuming I'm older than you guys then because my first show was 86 or 85. How old were you? And I was uh 15. You and Keith are probably right around the same age, okay? So But like I said, I lived in San Diego. This this goes to my point with with my show, what I'm trying to do with Black Comics Day, is that I lived in San Diego and I was heavily into comics, yet I was clueless to Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con. And somehow, some way, my dad knew about it. I know he collected comics. uh, um, He was in the Navy, right? And so he exposed me to comics because when he went on his Westpac or his overseas touring tours, I'm assuming he read comics to pass the time away. So when he would get back, he would just give me this you know, bag of comics that he had already read, not knowing that he was turning on the comic books, you know. And so he must have uh, he must he must have known about those conventions. And he just surprised me one day when uh, I guess he figured that I was really into it. You know? Yeah,
0: that works that works twofold when you think about it. It's like for one, you're giving a kid cartoons, basically, right? Like like on paper. And then two, his dad thinks it's cool. You know what right. I mean? So it's just like that's a double effect of like, well, comics must be cool, and I yeah. must love these because I like them and my dad likes them. So right. why would well,
2: I he, not did, he I'm pretty sure he was clueless to what he was doing to me because not only did he take me to my first Comic Con out of a uh, without telling me that's where we were going. He did the same thing with Star Wars. Like, I I went to the theater. I think I was I think I think was with my younger brother, too. We went there, and I kid you not, man, we didn't know we were going to watch Star Wars. Like, we just weren't paying attention to... We just... <laughs> what what we told us to do, right? We're in the theater, and we're thinking, oh, man, this is going to be some boring psychological thriller or something like that. Cause he would take us to anything. He didn't shield us from it. He took us to scanners. <laughs> you know about scanners? I love right? scanners. Yeah. He took us to that. He took us to the omen. Stuff like oh, that. Oh. Daws. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so you know, we're, I'm thinking it's going to be something along that line. And so, you know, uh Daffy Duck, Space Duck Dodgers came on first. Oh, this is cool. I'm getting something out of it. And then, uh, and then, you know, the, the Fox logo pops up, you know, and then, and, and then you guys know the rest is like, I saw that Star Destroyer come over and then I can't even remember anything previous to Star Wars. That was it for me, you know, and I was on my path to figure out
0: some way to be a part of this art world, you know, and that's that, so that funny that you, that you bring up Star Wars because that's something that gets brought up pretty much every episode of making comics. And and funny enough, Keith, I don't know your
1: first experience with Star Wars. What's your first experience with Star Wars? I don't remember my first experience with Star Wars as a movie. I remember liking it. I I mean, I remember loving it at a young age, but it's one of these blocks in my memory. Like I have vivid memories of Empire Strikes Back. Like I saw Empire Strikes Back, Six, seven times in the theater, sometimes by myself, which is crazy because I was nine, right? <laughs> and that just shows you that. But like, the world was different, different back time. then. It was a it, different dude. It time. wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't abnormal for a kid. And and I remember being like, we went on vacation somewhere, and I just found the movie theater in town, and Mom and Dad were like, yeah, yeah, walk down there, go see the movie, right. you know, that kind of thing. So I have vivid memories of watching Empire Strikes Back as a movie. I I know that I loved Star Wars, same as same as Keith and right at the same age. And uh, but but my only vivid memories, of course, right. This is the collector in me. My only vivid memory of Star Wars is that my mother worked at a department store and pre-ordered the OG four pack for me, Um, which, you know, Star Wars nerds know it was uh, what Luke, Leia, Chewbacca and R2. And Luke and Leia were in there. Luke was in his white white robe and Leia was in her whites, the classic Leia figure. And, uh, you know, so sometimes I mean, did I love it? Did she get me the toys because I love the movie? Did she get me the toys because kids like toys? I have no idea. Empire was your first one? Well, I mean, no, I, I saw—I definitely saw Star Wars New Hope when I was six. I just don't have a strong memory of oh. it. Empire, I got crazy memories of doing oh, that. So you know? what particular
2: scene or element of Star Wars just kind of just like
1: hooked you or blew your mind or just was like a tattoo in your brain? sorts of light <laughs> you know it was just like whoa that's so i remember lightsabers and i remember darth vader right because he was just so cool and badass but evil that a particular and, scene that uh you- yeah well i mean the the one the one that sticks out keithan is i think the original basically the original intro to darth vader in the first film where he blasts open the rebel ship kind of walks through a cloud of smoke and then just holds the dude by his neck you know, a foot and a half off the ground. Right. That's, that's the one where it was like, Whoa, you know, we're onto something here. Um, Mine is a, it's funny because
0: I'm, I'm a different generation than you guys. So, and I didn't watch the movies. I don't believe I saw them in the theaters. I think my first exposure to star Wars uh, was home theater. Mm -hmm. So the first one that I remember watching is Jedi. And so for me, Jedi is my favorite because I was the right age for that to be, Mm-hmm. my favorite star wars movie right and um yeah. so my my tattooed image scene in my head is um when luke goes into Jabba's court and it's just like oh you're you're gonna give me her you know you w- this is what's what's going <laughs> on or whatever and then shit just goes down that's the, the that's the image that's always the first in my brain the rancor yes
1: yeah. yes yes how about how about you keithan you're uh, you're asking i wonder what yours is uh, that that's that's
2: I'll never, to this day, like every year at some point, I got to watch that opening scene from episode four, that, that Star Destroyer, that whole sequence. It's just, I mean, it, to me, it's the greatest opening to any film ever made.
1: You know, I mean, there's some other films that come close, but not... Spaceballs, right? <laughs> <laughs> Keith, what'd you do this week, work-wise? In this, on this podcast, all I really do is talk about my capacity as a writer and someone who makes comics of my own. But this week was pretty heavy in being part of Two One Five Inc. Right, because I'm I'm basically part of the I guess the you know structure of that company. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to be launching a Kickstarter soon for a uh, comic of ours called Doctor Crow, and it collects the first four issues. It's basically like the Shadow. It's it's like a retro cool kind of vigilante exploring the dark monstrous spooky corners of the world right yeah. kind of a monster of the like, week thing doing that like a
0: noir cult occultish mm-hmm.
1: okay. I wouldn't say it's occultish I'd say it's more you know like shadow Kolchak the Night Stalker x files if I was gonna okay. go there perhaps um, but anyway so dude I've been doing a lot of prep on that. And, uh, and, you know, like like the, the 215 guys um, haven't done, like I've done more Kickstarters than they have. I, I think this might be their first one kind of as a company. So I've just been able to incorporate a lot of stuff that we've talked about, Scott, a lot of stuff that I've lived you know, it doesn't take that many Kickstarters to get the vibe of it. We're, we're basically ready to launch. But, you know, and usually I don't mention this kind of stuff, but it was a ton of work. And it dominated so much of the work in my week, you know, setting up basically everything except the copy that, uh, you know, setting up the graphics that, that make the tiers, designing the tiers, designing the price points, gathering all the art to make all that stuff happen. So, hey, sometimes it's weeks like
0: that. Yeah, that, that's something that's not talked about enough uh, in Kickstarters is how much prep work goes into them. It's like you really do need a, a week or two to really just figure everything out. Uh, the video, for one, if you're going to do a video, videos are always good, right? Like even if you can, honestly, the videos don't have to be long. 30 seconds or less is, is actually kind of people's yes. attention spans. And um, like we used to do really long videos. We used to do like two-minute videos or whatever. we do like stories with them. And most of the time, people didn't even watch them, you know, like we would get the percentages of how many people finish the video or how much of the video they finished. It's like they watched a little bit of it and just stopped, you know, and then, you know, they just they're just going to back the project or whatever. So but, you know, Kickstarter does recommend those videos and then creating those reward tiers like you talked about and then doing all the wording on it. So it's like, okay, what are you getting in this? Like just uploading everything. Oh, you get this and then this and this. Like it's all part of the process. It all takes a certain amount of time it's very time consuming so
1: exactly it's the grind work you know and there's a lot of grind work involved in making comics and promoting yourself and doing that stuff and it, it it's that it can't be forgotten you know you can't you can't just make comics in a vacuum and and hope that something great happens you know you have to do all the grind work and you have to hustle and so yeah some some weeks it's like that
2: right right you know the scariest thing about kickstarter is hitting the launch button
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I, yes, I think totally. this the scariest yes. one. The scariest one I did was um for my my trade paperback, and I think I needed five grand, and like, and I I think I was getting on average probably about four grand to kickstart just in single issues, like doing single issue, I, I raised about four grand. So, but for some reason, five. I think I needed five thousand five hundred, and it was a little daunting, and uh, because I would usually just do it for, I think. 1,100 or something like that, or 2,200, mm-hmm. that would be my average. And then so this one I needed to, to pay for the trade. So it's like, well, I can't afford to pay for it unless I hit five Gs. And um, you know, there's other, other avenues now. But um, yeah, that was that was a little scary. I ended up getting it right towards the end. Like, I think the last week, I finally got it. And then I went over. But it was like one month of sweating bullets. And it was it was brutal basically I've been just doing drawtober. Like I'm just working ahead as much as possible because I really do want to focus on other things. Like, and my brain, it's just, I don't, I don't know how you guys are with, with certain things. Like my brain's like, you have to complete this task. Like you have to finish this. So it's just like, I feel like I need to work ahead as quick as I can. Like at one point I was only, I was finishing the next days the night before, you know what I mean? So it's just like, there's so much stuff that comes up in a day that like it's important for me to hit these deadlines it's like because because i know at the end of it there's going to be a finished book there so the last thing i want to do is like fuck this up it happens once a month you know or once a year so it's just like yeah just hit the one piece it's not hard like honestly like i'm looking at the time frames in which i'm hitting these and it, and it's not very long but uh you know just things come up throughout the day so but i really want to focus back in on going on uh wanderers three and doing the thumbnails for that so just moving ahead, I was able to catch up a couple of days ahead, uh, get get some you know wiggle room there. Um, Your and stuff I'm, is really advanced, bro. Like, oh, thanks, man. Been watching it. Yeah, I'm. I'm. What you know? What's really cool about the process is, it's like you're putting the character through a story arc, right? But you're also focusing on composition the whole time. It's just like, well, I don't want this composition to be the same as the previous day and that also helps when you're creating comics on your page you don't want you know mid-shot face mid-shot 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 you want to go close back middle you know high low like you want to you want to hit the gamut like on on the angles so uh, that's what I've been doing and it's it's just kind of fun and it's tightening up those those artistic muscles uh, by by trying things at different angles and and uh and then also Another aspect is making it look like it flow. Like, well, this is also a fight scene, so let's look like a continuous movement for the previous panel. So sometimes you get a close up, a far away. It's not the same angle, and then you do a couple that are the same angle, but it's just an action scene. So it's it's uh, all those aspects of it makes it really interesting. It seems to
2: have a. This is concerning your work, it seems like you're getting a lot of a lot more. Em- emotive work in there like the expressions like I can see the expressions and the the mood of the character a lot very clearly it seemed like you're it's almost like you're taking snapshots from a film almost like some European stuff I see I don't know what you've been looking at lately but you understood like uh, you know if you ever look at stuff that you know obviously there's Mobius uh, and 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 that era of artists it, this stuff is crystal clear versus like stuff you see from American comic book artists, with, there's more shading and more blacks involved, cross-hatching and all that stuff, whereas Mobius uh, or the European art style is more, it's almost storyboard. You know? yeah. I think American stuff is more pure comic art, as far as the art form is more adhered to the, the strength of comics, whereas the European stuff, even though it's technically sound it's almost storyboard that makes any sense yeah absolutely like they're breaking um, down they're, they're using they're using the panels to to control time more yes you know yeah if absolutely. you're into that style you know
0: whatever uh, storytelling is in, insanely important to me like um uh you know back to when i was wrestling it was like my matches they were stories they were single stories you know, or unless they would be continued, right? Like in a feud or something like that. And I feel like that with comics too. I feel like someone should be able to read my story without words. So if you can do that as an artist, you, you've done your job. Like, and it doesn't have to be complete hand holding, but there's, that's something I really enjoy. Like the aspect of, it's like a nice challenge. It's like, can you tell what's going on in the story without words? And, and if someone right. can, right. then I'm really happy, happy with that. That's um, key. and also with the shading like that's something I've I've, and honestly and I I don't know how much I believe it I've heard an artist say I I can't remember which artist uh, it might actually been a European artist now that now that you mention it but it was just like the more lines you put down people think they people think that the artist knows what they're doing but in other artists minds it shows that they don't it's like they're covering something up and I'm like, I see what he's saying. Like, if you can get an idea of what's going on with a pure line without having to do all these lines and details and shading and cross-hatching and stuff, it's like, yeah, I get that. I understand that. But like, I also don't feel like we need to detract from other artists that do do that. Do right. that. Like one of my favorite artists of all time, Jim Lee, he cross-hatches the shit out of everything. But right. you know he knows what he's doing. Like he shows you and he, he, like, he has his own channel and he explains to you exactly what he's doing. But it's not. Yeah. I, oh, sorry.
1: No, no, go ahead, and then I'll go.
2: I was going to say, um, if you want to take Jim Lee, the stuff he does now is not the stuff he did it back in his image days. As far as crosshatching, there's a lot of that. A lot of that he doesn't do anymore. I mean, this refined crosshatching is meaningful crosshatching. Where back in yeah. those days, those guys were going for for just visual impact, and it didn't really matter if it adhered to the story or not. You know what I mean? Like. They, they'll put hatching just because it looks cool, not because right. it's, it's trying to emphasize what's happening at the moment of that panel or that story, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, whereas someone like a more seasoned artist like Frank Miller. Now, Frank Miller's stuff was more traditional when he started. Uh, and then you fast forward to his to his Sin City days. Obviously, it's been stripped down to just whatever the composition needs, and then everything else is stripped out. As long as you got the, the gist of what he wants to communicate, that's, you can see you can see his mind working if you look at his stuff from Daredevil to Ronin, to Dark Knight, to Sin City, how he's stripped all the stuff he doesn't need anymore, down to just yeah. the distance of what he's doing. Whether you like it, I mean, he may think it's ugly or whatever, but I understand what he's trying to do, you
1: know? Yeah, I I think for me, um, you know, so you mentioned Sin City just now, it's going to tie into the music analogy I'm about to make, I think, um, because Scott, something I forgot to mention from you is I think today's panel that you did was one where it's a big panel and in the bottom left corner, I think there's a character falling, right, Mm -hmm. or getting knocked to the ground. And what I love about that panel is the negative space right? Is the use of negative space. They're just all of the white space. And, uh, you know, to Keith's point, that's, that's Frank Miller with Sin City. That's negative space Um, because I'm not an artist, but because I've done music for a long time, I think about it in, in musical terms. And, and so since I'm, I'm pretty big into funk music, I think of the difference between, you know, like the busy thing in funk would be parliament funkadelic, right? Where you've got nine people playing instruments at the same time. And they're all making it work. And like in P-Funk's case, the chaos is what works for it, right? Like there's all kinds of crazy shit going on at some spot at some mm-hmm. um, and some points. And that's why it works on the negative space side for funk. You have a band like the meters, right? Where it's just four people playing instruments and they use negative musical space, right? Like, so, you know, the thing that I've, I, I used to make this comment about the meters, I guess I still do is that if you took tiny little slices of audio from the meters, right, from any particular one second or two, three seconds of music from the meters, you would find tiny slices of silence, right, because they are using space, you know, and, um, and that's, that's negative space in music, but the meters are like one of the funkiest bands of all time, so they made it work the meters didn't try to be parliament funkadelic and parliament funkadelic didn't try to be the meters, you know? So part of that is style. And part of that's an example of how all things can work, you know, cross hatching going, you know, going overboard and being busy can work. Um, And, you know, going very minimal can also work.
2: And also, also to, I think back to what you were saying, Scott, about, I don't know who told you that, but the guy is probably, you can, when he was saying what art, what, The general public sees versus what artists see i think professional artists i don't care how detailed it is or what you're doing like we know when you're trying to hide some uh, uh, weakness Mm -hmm. you can just you know we know you can tell you can fish it out for sure yeah so someone like bernie rice and it's packed with lines but each line is is there for a reason Mm
0: -hmm.
2: you know what i mean it makes it's and it's super even though it's detailed it's still super clear like i know exactly what i'm looking at yeah You know, even though there's trillions of lines in this drawing, I know exactly what I'm looking at. There's no like, it doesn't, you know, it's just not
0: lines just for lines sake. That's, I don't take any one artists, like no matter how long they've been doing it, I'll listen to what they're saying and I'll try to wrap my head around what they mean. Because sometimes people, you know, we're we're artists, but we're not geniuses. You know, sometimes (laughs) they're not explaining themselves correctly. You know what I mean? So maybe when this particular artist was saying that, he meant it in the fact that maybe it was like something in the '90s when people were throwing down lines to throw down lines' sake, right? Like, but he's not talking about a Bernie Wrightson. So, but but when you just take his quote, you know, at face value, at face value, you're like, that doesn't really make sense, though. Like, if you if you are an artist, you go like, that's not true. (laughs) <laughs> that's not true right. at all there's a right. whole style called cross-hatching and you have to do a lot of lines like that's what that thing is so uh yeah that's that's you know and it's awesome when and when people
2: artists that know how to i don't I, like i'm not a cross-hatcher like i'll say that off bad i'm not a cross-hatcher but i'm fascinated by the guys who do it well like i'll sit there and
0: look at it like wow you know <laughs> you, you do some really great line work man i really enjoy the way you you do like a little bit of a stipple too, like I've noticed when you work. Like I've seen you draw, and you kind of do this. You'll dash something off. You'll do a line, and you go tip tip. Like I'll see you do these two oh, little. Yeah. yeah, you know, like it's just a nice little. Um, that's probably
2: uh, from. Um, that's probably influenced from people like Arthur Adams.
0: Yeah, oh, I love that stuff. Yeah, uh, Travis Charest would do a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really beautiful stuff, man. I really like your work. And, you. and it's gotten only stronger since I've known you. I mean, I guess that's what we all want as artists, right? Like, yeah. hopefully the well, stuff that you see for me are, is better than when you first met me. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and you know, I with you. Yeah. What people don't know about my
2: stuff is, particularly in the last, when I started the Power Nights, my comic, I was really still searching for separation from the from what you from the the house style in comics. And so I was pushing anatomy, um, exaggerating limbs, exaggerating proportions and all on purpose. You know, I don't know if people because if you like the, the the book that's about to come out now, and I told you I was remastering A lot of that stuff is gonna some of those panels will be or I've redrawn because I'm just not in that headspace anymore. Yeah. And what's happened is, and I think this, and I tell artists all the time, like you're going to find as you get older or more seasoned as an artist, you're going to find yourself reverting to your natural style. Like if there's nothing in front of you and you just start drawing when you're, when you're just doodling, that's your natural style because you're not thinking, you're not trying to, you're not influenced by the comic you just put down you're just going to town and you're subconsciously making lines on the paper. And that's generally really your natural style. And you're not concerned about getting it right and erasing a million times. Mm -hmm. That, that was me when I started power nights and the the work I was doing in that time period, early 2000s, I was kind of like almost, I don't want to say lost because like I said, I was doing it on purpose, but at the same time, I wasn't realizing you already have a style, just nurture that. Be confident with that you know because i think and i don't want to knock the guy but i have to go here i think when when lightfield and, and the image guys came around a lot of artists were started like oh threw a lot of the uh foundation out the out the window because they wanted to they wanted they saw the success those guys were having they saw the money that those guys were making And it's like, I guess that's the way to go. And you saw some of the Marvel, the people, some of the artists that that worked at, like uh, Eric Larson and those guys, they, you could tell they were influenced by what Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and and Sylvester were doing. Like, you could tell a lot of those guys started
0: gravitating toward that style. Yeah. Well, I mean, even even their natural style. uh, Liefeld Liefeld talks about that in his podcast, where uh sylvestri he always talks about sylvestri is the best artist of their generation in his opinion he goes he was better than all of us and he goes the thing that he figured out when he joined us was how we were laying out panels like just the way they broke broke panels down compared to the way he did it sylvestri prior was just pure storytelling that's mm-hmm. all he was just doing traditional storytelling just like he learned from the masters right everybody mm-hmm. that came before him then he saw how Liefeld and lee and mcfarland were laying panels or pages out it was like, oh, you got an anchor panel. This is your money shot. Each page should have a money shot or this panel that pulls people in. And he goes, oh, okay, I see what you guys are doing. And so he had this mastery that those guys, well, you know, certain guys didn't have. I'm not naming anybody because uh, I, I liked all those guys. Um, right. But um, so he saw what they were doing and he adapted it. But but for for my money, I still preferred Lee to everyone, right? Like, it was like, well, he had the technique, the skill, and the page composition that I enjoyed. Liefeld, right. I loved, like, his new Mutants and X-Force run. Like, to me, that's, that stuff still stands up. Like, I look at it and go, this is still super awesome. It's super fun. It's a lot of energy. It's just like, as an artist, okay, I can see some stuff that, that people talk about. But at the same time, I think overall, I'm like, I still enjoy this. I'll go as far as to say Liefeld was the spirit, the spirit animal of Jack
2: Kirby. He a lot of had energy. that same energy on the page, that same effect on the general public. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, uh, atomically sound, although Jack Kirby could draw straight straight as anybody else if he really wanted to. But what excited people was his, lay, his compositions, the way the characters popped off the page, uh, the bombasticness of it all. And Liefeld had that same energy and power in his work. You know, I know he gets he gets shit for not drawing feet and all that stuff, and some of that criticisms deserve it, but it the work did the job it was supposed to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And 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 that's what counts. Um and and I will I give him a lot of credit for just being myopic. That's like, no, this I'm Rob Liefeld, this is my style, I'm gonna draw this way. I don't care what anybody says. This is it,
1: and it worked for him, you know. You know, listening to you guys talk, I, I've been thinking. Okay, well, what what moves me, right? What moves me, and and the the thing that seems to move me the most is um em- emotion, right? So like artists who have an emotive style, who may not be you know, to, to Keithan's point may not be like textbook perfect, but they evoke a feeling. So Jack Kirby is pretty much my favorite artist. Um, you know, other artists that rank up there are Frank Miller when he gets experimental, like Sin City. Mm-hmm. Um, also Sam Keith, uh, also, uh, you know, well, Wrightson, I mean, I don't know, every, it feels like everybody should just like Bernie Wrightson, right. <laughs> like Bernie Wrightson is <laughs> awesome. Um, and then, uh, who else was I just thinking of? Oh, Sinkevich. right? Yeah, where, yeah. where Sinkevich is, you know, like, it's so strange at times, but it makes you feel something, you know? And I know for me as a writer seeking out artists to work with, that's what I want. You know, like I'm even looking at artists right now for, for one of my books for Kadoja. And it's just like. You know, I recently was looking at two people and it's like, well, one person's technically perfect and one person's emotive. I'm drawn to the emotive. You right. know, I'm, I'm drawn to the thing that is less technically perfect, but more raw in my case, because I want to feel something when I'm looking at this page. That brings me to a question for you guys. I don't really
2: particularly like comic artists that are super realistic and or you could tell they trace, like you could tell like, This guy's drawing a photo of Robert Downey Jr. Like, right? It's obvious he used reference, and it's to the point where he traced it. Yeah, I'm not really into that style either. I don't think that's true comic art. That's illustration to me, not comic art.
0: You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I'm not really into that style either. I'm, um, you know, a kid of the '90s, so I did love guys like Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson. I love those guys' stuff, and it like. And there's something about it. It's just like, you know, Keith, and what you were bringing up prior it was just like, people were, were riding off the coattails of those guys. They're like, well, we're doing this. So th- I mean, look, th- they're doing that. And it's really successful. They're making millions of dollars over there. You know, let's just do that. And, and to your point, that's not their true style no. and that's not what's going to draw people to their book. Maybe at that time it did because, you know the market was insane everyone was trying to buy everything thinking it was going to put their kids through college or whatever but um you know that lasted for such a short period of time and then it was over you know and then right. you know like <laughs> keith keith is a perfect example of someone that's wouldn't fall for that shit he goes well i don't like all this style i like this stuff over here because it's just different keith has a very particular look he likes for his books and it's a different taste you know, then, then maybe mine would be, you know what I mean? Or yours. So it, that's, what's cool about art is art is so subjective. It's like, what's cool to you and I might be different to, to somebody else. You know, there's only one artist that I, I do like when they, that's th- their style is realism. And, it, and for some reason, he's figured it out. Alex Ross. Yeah. I was going to say he's probably the only guy, but I also think it's because he was the first guy that I knew. I was like, Whoa! You can draw just realistic people, and like to me, it blew my mind. It was the first time I ever saw it. It's but then after stiff. that, That's it wasn't you. as cool. It's not stiff, right? Like he had he. It retains energy
2: and dynamism. Uh, he, even though it's all there, the backgrounds are complete. Uh, everything's solid, but it doesn't look like. I mean, obviously he has reference. I know his process, but at, but at the same time, he's done it like uh, just like uh, Norman Rockwell. Norman Rockwell has reference, but for some reason or other, he's figured out a way to make it look like it just came out of his head. You know, yeah. what I mean, like it looks like it looks like it na- It's his natural It's like a movement to it a bit. Yeah, it, it's not. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, what I dig about Alex Ross um, is, is how Uh, you know to your point about how realistic the anatomy of the superhero seems to be you know like in his shots of superman and batman those are the ones that i'm thinking of right now they're goddamn huge they are they are built the way a large man with muscles and broad shoulders would be built as opposed to like the over chiseled look that you get a lot from from most comic artists and it's like I get, I, I get it. People look like that too, you know. But, but what I really liked about Alex Ross was kind of like the old school brawniness that he brought to that, where it was more, you know. And I think that's that's a nice throwback to when these characters were supposedly around. In a lot of cases, they're hating, you know. Um, yeah, it reminds and me you, of
0: like you know, the you circus strongman or something, right,
1: right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. And something I was going to ask you, Scott. I'm I'm trying to think of how this times out. I think. I think you were into comics when this came out, but, you know, and, and Keithan can probably back me up on this. But speaking of Alex Ross, when Marvel's first came out on the newsstand, that blew everybody's mind. You know, like Marvel's was the talk, as I remember it, of the comics world for all those months as people just raced. To to, you know, like that was a comic that was incredibly hot at the time. And it was just so mind-blowing, really hard to find. Everybody was flipping it at four times the price. You know, it's probably that exact same price right now, for all I know. That, that was in the nineties, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to figure that's out today. when in the nineties. I think mid that was early season. to mid that was a, That's I been another
2: say. shift that we've been dealing with as that's when artists really matter. Yeah. I, I like today, I don't feel like when I go into the shop today and see comics now, I feel like the artist is now second fiddle. Like they'll just, the writer, it's all about the writers now. And I'm like, I feel like that's a mistake. Like you can't have, it's still a visual medium. And, th- and right now there's this trend to bring in pose writer, writer novelists, bring in those guys, never wrote a comic in their life. And they're, I don't know, they're a name in their world. Okay, that's great let's pair this great writer with this okay artist right yeah that's
0: that's the that's the failure of that experiment um it's like it's like when you bring in a big name uh, a writer you pair him with an amazing artist and then that's when you get the you know the takeoff hit but if the artist's subpar then we have a problem so and and i think it was a overcorrection of the '90s. The '90s, it was all art. It was art matters. The story secondary, you know, it doesn't doesn't matter as much as long as the art's good, right? right. And then and in the early aughts, they they switched it up. They're all fuck that, okay? It's all about the writers, you know. You, that's when Bendis, you know, came to power or whatever, and uh, you know those writers were amazing. And you know you would have artists, but I think I think one of the things that the big two really focus on is not keeping an artist on a book for too long because they don't want the artist to grow as much power as the image guys did. So it was just like the image guys were so powerful because they did long runs on books and everyone's like this book is amazing who is this guy, you know? And but if you keep moving Lanil Yu around or Humberto Humberto Ramos around or something like that, they're not going to become the next giant image guy. I brought a Ramos as a weird example since she was an image, but... um,
2: I've seen artists, I mean, writers praise their artists and and then I look at
0: the art, I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) I think in, in some instances, it's one of those things where you can't shit on your partner. You know what I mean? It's just like, even if you think he's only okay, you got to prop him up because you got to make the product be good, right? Like, if you don't yeah, but the see, art's the, good, the, you're like, see, hey, my writing is top-notch, but the art's not very good, but you should read it anyway. Yeah, but I think, the as writer, I think the writer's criteria of what's good or not is if this artist does exactly what he writes. That can be the case, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, that happened early on with Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo. So Scott Snyder went through... Uh, you know, whatever he, he got brought in. Um, who did he know? It's uh, Stephen King or something like that. What was his oh, Scott name? Snyder? Yeah. He was friends with a, a huge name, a writer. And so he got brought in. Right. And mm-hmm. so basically they would stick him with really great artists and they would just do exactly what he said. And then he got teamed up with Capullo for uh, Batman new 52 and he would give super tight, panel descriptions hey i want this angle i want this that this and that right and then is like hey man you just got to let me be free i right. just want let just let me do what i need to do and snyder's like what the fuck no you got to do what i say you do and he's like no i'm not doing that and because he just got done working with Todd you know Capullo. yeah don't like shit for nobody <laughs> yeah so is like you know fuck off no i'm gonna do you tell me what needs to be done on these pages who who does Batman need to punch? Okay, he needs to deal with Killer Croc for these first five pages. Just let me know what goes on and I'll fill it up. You know what I mean? And then uh, to the point where Snyder actually went to DC and says, I don't think this is going to work. And they're all, you're going to make it work. Because they knew they finally got Greg Capullo from from McFarlane. Right. So, they, they hashed it out and he just started going like, alright, well, okay, here. And then Capullo goes, here, here's some fucking awesome pages. And Snyder's like, Never mind, I was wrong. Right. So he you know, he realized it. That's actually something I think you and I talked about Keith early on is like initially you kind of had tight stuff and then Rory's like just let me go, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and that's and that's okay though. You know what I mean? Like it, look, every creator needs to be open to change. You know, I've I've mentioned this to to develop and grow. Um and and to that point, Scott, you know, to refresh something we just talked about a week or two ago, Will, who I'm working with now, at least on this first issue of Kadoja, he prefers really tight, you know, ornate descriptions, even though he knows I'm giving him carte blanche to change it however he wants, you know, so, you know, like, he likes to see a a, as crystalline a vision as I can give, so that he can then see that in his head and draw it however it comes out. Mm. So, you know, I think there's there's so many ways to work, you know, but yeah, it's it, that's exactly what Rory did. I mean, it, it by the time Rory and I got to like issue 10, I just said, "Rory, these two monsters fight in the mountains on these on these 8 pages, here's the dialogue. And I just give him all the dialogue. And then, mm-hmm. you know, like he would put it all in. That was it. He'd draw every single panel, drop in the dialogue, and then and then it was done. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's uh
2: that's like it goes back to what I was saying like when you choose your artist you 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 look at his work or her work and you and you key in on i mean this is what editors do i mean they key in they they, they probably put they put Kapula with uh Snyder But obviously he's a name first he's already established himself as a popular artist but he still has to. He still has to look right with with with, with in in, um, in regards to what Snyder's um, writing, right? So Snyder, you would hope would understand, like, okay, Greg is great at doing, um, I don't know, uh, trucks or something. I'm going to let him go crazy on this truck scene, right? Yeah, writers, writers kind
0: of writing to the artist' strong suit. Yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Right? How, I, okay, so that that actually brings a question. Let's swing it back to you real quick. So I'm I've, I've worked with Ed closely, my writer for for years. He's pretty much the only person I've worked with. What's your process like? Like, because you're used to doing your own books too, right? So, mm-hmm. but now you've been working uh uh for Chaos yeah. Breaker or uh, uh I'm sorry, uh, Vortex. You've yeah. Been working for Vortex. How is it like working with that writer? Like. Does, does he give you super tight stuff, or is he is he pretty loose with it? He's very loose. He's
2: super awesome. I and I just complimented on him about that last week. I told him like, man, I thanked him. I said, thank you for giving me breathing the space to create, man. Because he could have, uh, you know, I could have, he could have strong, strength, stronghold me as a, as an artist. You know, artists we want to get paid. We need to get paid. But this guy, Max, um, the way he writes is. He lets me know, I got the dialogue. I know what dialogue goes to which, what panel. And I know the basic uh, action of the panel. But he's not telling me start from a bird's eye view. And I've had writers do this to me, you know, have the fist start
1: in panel one and then have them connect in panel two. If a writer isn't letting an artist be an artist, then they're not doing their job. Yeah, because I ultimately, even with him,
2: every, up to this point, every project I've been on, there's pages where I've had to, um, I found myself stripping out in two or three panels because it just, they don't understand that in order for me to do this eight panels, you want, everything in the, in these panels has to be way small. Cause you're telling me what you want in each one of these eight panels. And in mm-hmm. order for and, I, and technically, I can do it, but it's not going to have any real impact because it's going to be so small. And you really haven't done anything to enhance what you're trying to do. Like it's just, I, I'm not seeing. Nec- it's not necessary, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's just not necessary. You know, um, your words are still there, but that's not my style. Nothing in my portfolio shows me shows you that I drew the uh, draw in that manner or break down my pages in that manner and that's what i mean when i say um writers choosing their artists like we're not robots you just don't right plug us in and you you, don't work the next artist will
0: right so he basically just gives you dialogue to go off of in basic direction like hey these two characters are fighting on this page and then at the end of this page needs to be the conclusion or something i have a complete i get
2: a complete script from him okay so I know, and each page is cleanly broken. Page one, two, three, four, so on and so forth. Right. The dialogue that is that that relates that is pertaining to that particular excuse me that particular page and what panel the dialogue goes into. Uh, the only real description is usually at the beginning of the page. You know, the establishing shot. You're on a mountain. Uh, it's dark, storming. There's a uh, birds flying around, creatures flying around, then it's up to me to design those creatures. You know, he'll let me know if it's specific, like, oh, this creature uh, looks crab-like, it has a long tail with a uh, bulb at the end or something like that, because it's, 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 it's um, that information is critical to what he's trying to convey in his story. Like, that is an important key point that must, that creature must have that hook at the end of his tail for a reason. You know, uh, right. how I designed it, the, the way the hook looks, the details
0: of the hook and all that stuff is up to me. So, okay, so another question uh, with the workflow. So since you're a jack of all trades on this book, you're pretty much doing everything but the, the scripting and the, uh, the writing. What, like, what's your workflow like? Do you do, okay, you read the script, you envision it, you do your thumbnails, you tackle the page, you do pencils, inks, then straight to color, or do you do pencils, inks, and then move to the next page and then color everything at the end? I do all of the. I'll
2: pencil the entire book first. The pencils—that's the most um, taxing to me, as far as like racing and getting it right, figuring and figuring out the layout. And that's all the to me. That's the most energy I'll, I'll expend on putting a comic together. Right the inking is almost therapeutic because I'm just, I can relax. Now I can just follow. There's no more thinking. There's only going back over what I've already done. And, um, and in, and in the interest of speeding up my process, because I don't, I can't linger on this stuff too long. Uh, since I know I'm going to ink it, uh, let's say there's a scene with, uh, a bunch of rocks, broke uh, um, a bunch of rocks or something, right? I'll just indicate which of, a couple lines, rocks here, rocks here, whatever. And just to, I'll do maybe the silhouette of what the of, of, of the background element because I know I'm going to ink it. So I'll, when I ink it, then I'll put the details as I ink. That speeds up the process, you know. Hair, same thing. Um, I'll do that when I get to the inking part, you know, as long as I have the key, some key details in there so I don't lose the, lose the proportions, that's enough for me, you know. But if I had more time, my process would be like, um, thumbnail it at, at comic book size, then I'll blow that thumbnail up to 11 by 17, transfer it to, you know, or trace put it under my, clean light box maker. it. Yeah. light box it, you know, and it, if, if I have time, but right now I don't have the time. So right now um, I go, I just go right in on the at full size oh, and wow. break it down on page with oh, uh, a red pencil or blue pencil and then go in with the clean, go in with clean pencils and just clean. Just the only stuff that's tight is usually the figure work because I got to make sure that the proportions and the anatomy is correct. So I'll make that type, but stuff, usually like backgrounds and stuff, I'll just lightly indicate where, what, you know, where stuff is. And especially if I have to use a ruler, you know, I'll just say, okay, get get my figure out my, um, what do you call it? Vanishing point. And I'll put some key elements in there, but then all the details, all the little scraggly nicks and knacks and, and, and bricks and, and, a thousand windows if I have to do that that's stuff I'll do as I eat as long as I have the the structure there and that's all in the interest of of uh, time um, but the answer yeah but to to finish answering your question pencils all the way through inking all the way through and then coloring all the way through and with my uh the way I get paid with vortex is I don't get paid until I turn something in. That doesn't mean turn in the entire book. Just whatever I turn in, they'll pay me for that portion of it. Oh, okay. So I'll, uh, we use it right now. We kind of go with five page in- intervals, of whether that's five pages of pencils, five pages of inks, five pages of colors. Just so, you know, I'm not running on empty. Keep the money. revenue flowing. Keep yeah. Money coming in, yeah. Yep, yep. So that's you. that's basically the workflow. And then somehow I have to figure out how to get my Power Night <laughs> book in there, too. Because as soon as I'm done with the chaos breaking issue, they'll send me the next, okay, here's the next issue.
0: (laughs) You got to fit it in where you can. Keith, did you have a question? Nope. Okay. All right. So, okay. So that was, that was definitely cool. I, I like to know other artists process, especially when you're doing a, you know, everything like Tristan Whitehouse from the aliens, he does the same thing. Like you do with power nights, you pretty much do everything. He does everything. Yeah. for um, uh, uh, Tarek Zion, The Adventures of Tarek Zion. I don't want to do everything, though. I, r- I, I really don't. I don't either. That's why I don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I don't. If I had the funding, I would... There's two things I would alleviate myself from, and that's inking and coloring. Oh, yeah, man. I Trust me. Well, for... number one, I'm not that very... I'm not very good at coloring. I'm only okay. So it's just like, well, that's not how I want to represent my work. You know, and like, I got... I've worked with my colorist for... 7 years now and so he basically just colors everything I do besides the covers to Wanderers which uh Emily Rocha does from the Aliens. Oh okay. so, yeah, she she paints them and then like I I hire her to paint and I I buy the originals off of her. So cool. yeah, I got those hanging on my wall. So I love those things. But uh yeah, Joaquin, I've been working with him for so long and it's just like I'll do the flats cuz that saves me you know, eight to 10 bucks a page or whatever, I'll do that. Like when, if the page is crazy, I got a guy. It's like, nah, you flat this, I'm not doing this. Yeah. Him. And if I had, you know, Joaquin can do it, but it eats up more of his time. It's just like, no, 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 I got a guy, that's his whole job. All he does is flat. So he's going to get it to me quick. You concentrate on the important stuff. You know what I mean? But it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm working digitally now for the most part. It's like, all right, I'll pencil, I'll ink digitally. And then I just send those over straight away. So that kind of, that helps with my time a lot. Like, just because like the way you're doing it, man, I couldn't do it. I, I, I would go insane. Like you just have so much more experience. It's super cool that you can go straight on the board like that. Like I, I'll watch Jim Lee's video sometimes on YouTube where he's just like, all right, I'm, this is the page I'm doing. And he's working it out in real time in front of everyone. He goes, no, nah, I don't like it. He just fucking erases the whole thing. And I'm like, that looked great. but like it's so cool that you have that much page work under your belt where you can you can work that way it was crazy though i don't
2: care how long i've been drawing year years wise if i stop drawing for a day or two days it's like i can't just pick up where i left off um level wise it's like god damn it i can't draw anymore again yeah it's like i gotta it's like a, a lawnmower, <laughs> you know, I know what I want to draw, but no matter what, it's like, nope, you're not going to be drawing until page three. Yeah. <laughs> you're not yeah. going to be able to flow and speed and go quickly until page three. So all of my comics at first, just so you know what, just so you guys know those first three pages of whatever I do is always a struggle. And then after that, that's when I start going like, Ooh, yeah. Like, you know, to feel, feel loose i'm drawing and i'm really in the zone mm-hmm. <clears throat> but i can't just turn it on no matter what like i just can't flip the switch and just go yeah,
0: that's how i feel with these drawtober pages right now like i'm really getting into a groove with it um the last three pages that i've done for days images that i've drawn like i'm really feeling it i'm really like what's coming out so but yeah that's that's exactly to your point it's just like like the lawnmower You haven't, you haven't started a lawnmower in a couple of weeks, bro. You gotta, it's going to take a couple of pulls and then you're going to get it there. You know, if you're going to do it two weeks in a row, you, okay. Might be a little bit easier to start. So. I have (laughs) a question for Keith. How do you guys write multiple
2: stories at once? Like how do you switch your mind frame and mindset to write another book while you're writing another? you know what I mean? Like it's it's so intense. to to just, how
1: do you do it? I mean, you know, I, I can't speak for all writers. I can only speak for me, but I think for me, it's, it's, um, I mean, you know, I, I read, I read a dozen, maybe 15 comics on a monthly basis, right. In addition to the back issues I buy in addition to all that other stuff. So it's like, you know, I'm, I have a pretty good awareness of where I am in the plot. You know, with all 12 of these comics, every now and then I'll pick up a comic and be like, man, it's like, you know, like starting a lawnmower. Like, I haven't read this in like four months. I got to figure out where the hell I am again. And then you get back into it. Right. But, you know, I I think with stories we write, it's like that too. You know, they're, they, they have a different DNA. You know, it's, it's like to stick with Star Wars, it's like taking a spaceship to another planet. You know, like I'm going to take my spaceship to this planet and this is the story I'm on. And, you know, if, if, if you've done your job as a writer, then that planet is vivid and you know everything you need to know about that planet simply by saying Jupiter or something like that, right? You're like, okay, here's what life is like here. Here's what the characters are like. Here's everything right by, because if you've, if you've done your research and built your world, then traveling to those planets shouldn't be that hard, right? So I think that's the, the first answer is as long as you have a fully realized world, it isn't that hard to kind of zip in and out, you know? Now that said, the way that I do it, I tend to do it in like little rotating chunks, you know? Like I might live in this world for a little while and dabble in that and then pull away for a couple of days and go back into this world and then write that. Um, and then kind of get myself back into it that way. But I mean, you you raise a good question because sometimes what I do is, I just reread some stuff that I've done recently to reacquaint myself with the world. So my version of starting The lawnmower is I'm just going to reread the last 10 pages I did and go from there. So, you know, like I'm also working on a novel. I give myself an hour every day to write on. I I force myself to write an hour every day in that novel. Hmm. Generally, the first 10 minutes, the way that I loosen up for the other 50 is to simply pick a point where I, you know, where I kind of started or somewhere around yesterday. And I just lightly edit that so I can put myself right back in that exact moment of the scene that I need to pick up. And I'd argue that that's no different than a world, you know, maybe you read the five pages before, maybe I just kind of do something to get myself in the mood and then boom, I'm in the world and it goes from there. And Hey, sometimes 55 minutes into the hour i finally get the groove and i'm like ah i'm feeling it and then i go further right like it's okay you know so i hope that answered the question there's various ways we all do it that's how i do it when stuck i I just just, i just read
2: when i like watch stuff on netflix for instance and they're long it's a long series or it's something like game of thrones right my like how do they
0: like I, i look at like how do it seems like to me writers are just geniuses already like how do they know this? Or for the artists that are out there listening, I strongly encourage you to get a writer because just what Keithan said is exactly my point. It's like, as an artist, I don't know when to drop in Easter eggs. Like, and, and like in the first story arc of the second shift, me and Ed had talked about the first 15 to 20 issues of the second shift and what we wanted to do. I had these villains that I wanted to debut. One of the villains that I'm drawing now, the taxidermist, he's in issues nine and 10 and ed dropped in easter eggs in the first story arc and i would never have thought to do that and i was like oh shit when i was drawing those pages i was like oh shit he put he put the taxidermist in this issue this an issue three you know and it's just like holy shit i would never have thought to do that why because i'm not a writer so mm-hmm. it's just like i always encourage people uh artists like even if you know your character's voices for instance so like ed ed does shit as a writer like like keithan said it's like fucking magic it's like i've would have never thought to do that you're fucking genius but then you know sometimes i'll get dialogue i'm like hey eh, let's tweak this dialogue a little bit but that doesn't you know thankfully my writer you know ed doesn't have an ego in the sense where he goes no no those are my words you don't change my words you know <laughs> so he's cool with like tweaks and i'll go what do you think about this and he goes well what about this and i'm like yeah that's better but it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's the collaborative process of it. You know, find someone that you can truly collaborate with and just like build this partnership uh, partnership up with. And, uh, you know, it'll be smooth sailing and you'll have a better product for it. Whether it's comics or movies or stuff, like the good stuff, you're like, God damn, dude. Like, mm-hmm. how did you think of that? Like, how did you think so far ahead? And then you get the guys like Miller. You know what I mean? It's just like, well, these guys are the complete package. Yeah. It's like- mm-hmm. It's like I can write a comic book, but it's not going to be fucking Sin City. I'll tell you well, that. <laughs> so I can write, draw, write something, Scott, But at the same time, what maybe
2: what Keith can do would take us years. That's, that's what I'm
1: saying. And, you know, it's I'm like right, I
0: could Keith, I could write it, but it would be stuff. like I don't know, man. It's just like Frank Miller could do it all.
1: The the awe is mutual from the other side of the tennis court, right? Because I can't draw shit. So when artists draw something and it comes back to me, I'm like, my God, this is magic. You know, like I just, I'm, I'm getting pages back from a comic I'm working on right now. And it's like, this is amazing. So I, I, I think, you know, when when you kind of do one thing or the other, like a lot of us where, you know, you guys are artists and I'm a writer, there's this, there's this magic box, you know, magic one thing that you kind of have about, about the other side, right. you know, but I think that, you know, if I asked you why your art is so magic, you just say, well, it's just this, it's a fusion of technique. It's years of practice. It's this and that writing the exact same way. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, it, it isn't natural to you because you may not be doing it as much. or doesn't feel natural. It feels more natural to me because it's, it's just what I'm doing every day. Right. So once, once you're on the other side and you're kind of on the inside of it, it, it's not a magic formula at all it's just kind of work and research and thinking and all the fusions that make us who we are okay,
2: so if you're writing this like if you're writing a scene that involves technical jargon between a um, of a real profession like maybe you're writing a a, a, a police procedure or something mm-hmm. do you research that or do you just or you just remember all that from stuff you read over the years or I, I do. I do research
1: it. It, it depends. You know, like, do, do I have any friends who are police? Right. That'd be thing number one um, in, in this. And then you can so you can do some quick Internet research. You could look, you could do one Google search and be like 50 common jargon terms that police people use. Boom. Now, at least you have a basic thing of jargon definitely you would talk to your friends. I'm just going off your example, Keithan, of like police officers, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to friends who are police officers. Then if you really want to go deep or you don't have friends who are police officers, look for books that that police officers wrote. Look for memoirs, look for podcasts, look for all those things like that, and then go from there.
2: So how long would you do that before you felt confident? Like, because you still have to, it has to ring true to the person reading it, right? Like, Oh, this sounds real. Like this sounds like yeah. it you know, and maybe if a cop a real cop reads it, they, they you know, obviously they'll know.
0: But so I yeah, I, it's it's Go just ahead. a matter I'll of I'll answer Dr. Scott. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just a matter of who you're talking to. So for instance, I actually did something very similar to this in my last year's drawtober. I had a scene where military officers were getting attacked by Lagrange, the main villain uh, in that issue from the first story art. And so one of the soldiers was calling back to home base or, or whatever they call it. Right. Mm -hmm. I have friends in the military. I have, I one of my buddies, he's actually a stuntman for Marvel. So he's like, kind of like a Jack of all trades. He's, he dabbles in writing himself. He's a bit of a writer. So I said, Hey man, can I send you something? I want wondering if you can consult on this. And he goes, yeah, man, no problem. So I sent him over the scenes. I let him know what was going on and roughly kind of what I needed him to convey back to home base and, and whatever. And so he told me, he goes, okay, in that situation, this is what would happen. And then he goes, you can either say this or that. And then, so he gave me a couple of examples. So me as a novice, you know, I'm just like, I'm just, I'm, I'm just dipping my toes in, in the writing. It was just like, okay, I, I'm trying something out. I'm going to, I'm going to rely on him for this. He says, this is what we would say. One was kind of more of a common term. And one was a less common term. And I'm like, I like the less common term because everyone uses the other one. It becomes, once everyone uses it, it's become cliche. So it's just like, I'm not going to use that one. I'm going to use this one. So if a military guy reads this, he's going to
1: go, yeah. Yeah, so I, but I would also say that even if something is quote unquote wrong, I mean, it's not, it, it may not be that wrong. You know, I had somebody, it was pretty interesting. I had a person come to me, um, come to my table at a show and they had read, I think the first volume of Kadoja, which is a, uh, you know, Keith, if you haven't not familiar with it, it's basically like a darker giant monster film. It's like early Godzilla films with, with sprinkle with sprinkles of horror and the sprinkles turn into like the main thing by the time you get further into it. But one of my lead characters is like a general In this new division of the military called special weapons. And I had a guy who was former military come to my table. And he said, "Um, you know, I I love it, but I don't think your military stuff's that accurate. You're not military, are you? And I'm Mm. like, no, you know, and then he said, you know, and here's why. And then he proceeded to say that what he didn't like about General Cruz is that she was not the kind of person that You know, like when a general walks in the room, you hold up your posture and you, you tuck your belt in and you make sure that you're not doing anything wrong. And she's not that type of person, you know? And my response is she isn't that type of person, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) she's, she's a free thinker. That's part of her character profile. And if she had, you know, she's not the kind of person that you're going to want to straighten up with in front of the room, but she is the kind of person that if you say something wrong, she's going to make, make you feel like the dumbest ass person in the room. You know, is, is that a conventional military person? Well, you tell me, you know what I mean? Like, I know they're not conventional military, but I never wrote her with the intent of having her be a pitch-perfect representation of a military general. She's her own person, right? So sometimes the wrong answer isn't even that wrong as long as it's clear in your head.
0: And I think uh, as far as depth go, like you asked, you know, how much do you research before you're satisfied? I think that's a personal preference because, I mean, it happens all the time, like in film, TV, you get it all the time. I, I know because my brother's a cop, my brother-in-law is a cop. So every time we're watching some kind of police procedural shit, he goes, that wouldn't have happened. They would never have done that, you know? And it's just like, it gets to the point where you're like, yeah, we're just watching TV though. Could you chill out? <laughs> so it's, it's how deep you want to go. Like if you do want it to be so technically correct that it is then, then cool. If not, it's just like, I guess it's the difference in like artist detail, right? Like some artists, they're doing stuff for fun, kind of goofy, kind of out there, just whatever's coming to their imagination. And then there's other artists that go, I need to research to make sure this tank is from 1952 when this shit was going on, right? Like, so there's, there's everyone thinks a little differently. So I think it's what you want out of it.
2: That's when it gets a little scary, and sticky for an artist. When we go into um, period pieces, that's when we have to do research. right? You can't rely, like science fiction, that's easy. But the period stuff, whether it's a tank or a building, that's when you wanna look like a poser. You know, like that's that's what separates the amateurs from the pros. It's like, you don't, and I'm the type of artist like, okay, I don't wanna do blueprints. Like, I don't wanna draw the Sistine Chapel in its exact detail because I'll be here forever. But as a cartoonist, I need, and I think this is what you're saying, Keith, I need to strike the right balance where you know what it is immediately, but it's not yeah. completely accurate. It's just enough information where it propels a story and you're not
1: confused and you know where you are. Exactly, and that's, you know, there were two points I was gonna make to kind of bring this to a close, right? To Along these lines. Number one, um, I've never, and, and I don't know if this is like a common writer adage, but it's my adage. I'm not here to try to be on par with the experts. You know, if I write something and there's and if it's a police person, to use your example, Keith, and 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 they come back and uh, look, I know if I write some military thing, there's going to be one, two, three people out of 100 that are like, that's not true. It's a flaw. It's a fun flaw. I mean, look, I do it, too. You know, I just do it on the things that I happen to know a whole lot about, where I'd be like, well, that rings wrong. You know, like it's a show, you kind of let it go. And as you long wouldn't as feel, not-
2: as, a, as a writer, you wouldn't internalize that criticism and, 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 and adjust it in the next volume or something? Or do, you, or do you think that's a dangerous road to go down? So,
1: actually, so it's funny you say that, Keith, and that exact comment, I haven't found the right place to put it in a Kadoja volume. But what I was planning on doing was I actually asked him to say it again and I wrote it down. And because, and I told him what I was planning on doing, which is I may have a character say this about her to her face, you know, that like, you're not the kind of person that makes me wanna tuck in her shirt. And then that gives her a moment to come back and say exactly the type of person she is. In that sense, it gives it
0: that realism. It's just like that criticism that a military person would have, it goes, yeah. I'm not your average person. Everyone in this room, yeah, they don't tuck their shirt in when they see me because I'm not that kind of person. But guess what they don't do? They don't fuck up in front of me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I was going to say about research is, you know, where you said, how much research do you do? Uh, A very common adage among writers is, do not fall in the research black hole. Because it can never end, Keith. You know what I mean? Like you can just research it forever until you want to become the biggest expert on something. But at some point, like generally, if you do a good amount of research, you know, a couple deep hours of thought, if you really need it, sometimes it doesn't need that much. Sometimes it just needs to feel authentic and you can get away with a lot lighter stuff than that. But at some point, you know, you want to write things and not do research. And, uh, and research is a very, very seductive black hole that many, many writers fall down. And at some point, you just got to cut yourself off and be like, look, I'm just going to write it the way it goes. It's going to satisfy 95 plus percent of the people. That's good enough. And let's keep rolling.
2: Yeah, I cool. just recently watched the entire, uh, you know, especially when we were on lockdown. I, I don't know if you watch the wire no, but mean, man,
1: this, this number one on my list yeah
2: heavy to watch. police procedure like it seems like this the, i'm like this one else is like this the writer is he a cop like this <laughs> yeah, stuff sounds, really... really sounds like he knows everything there is about police procedure on the on the police side and the crib like you know it just sounds like this guy knows his shit man
0: yeah. That's, yeah. yeah that's uh one of the highest recommended shows that i've heard from anyone that's watched it. it's huge and and yeah. much like going down the rabbit hole we can do this forever but we're on a bit of a time crunch we're already at an hour and a half so we're going to cut this uh pretty short i i would be remiss to not ask you keith and before we leave a couple of things just super quick uh what are you reading and which artists are you looking at right now oh listen Hmm.
2: Well, as you know, it's hard to read comics when you're drawing comics. It's just yeah. yeah. You you, you picked up quite a lot. bit
0: though. And then not only that, you were the uh 2021, you know, <laughs> eisner yeah, well, judge. So yeah, I'm you, I still you read from a that.
2: ton of books. <laughs> I'm still recovering from that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll be doing that again. Um, I just bought this today. I, I bought these two books today actually. Echo Lens is it's, it's oh, okay. I it like this because they actually have it Just sideways book landscape okay. echo lands you see it? yep yep uh this is really good uh, and this is the, it's only got two issues out and uh, i think i made a post about issue one a couple of days ago um i and i'm and speaking of writing i'm not really even sure what it's about it's kind of like Star Wars, where you're just thrown into the world, but it's not explaining itself. You're just trying to it feels like you're just trying to catch up to what's going on. And I like that about it. You know, the characters and the characterizations are interesting. You understand what's happening at the moment, in the moment of the scene. And you know it's in the future it takes place in the future, but um yeah, I mean, but that's about all I can tell you about it. Uh I'm assuming the guy's influenced by Star Wars by some of the stuff that's in there, but uh, I recommend Echo Lens. Um, you could tell there's a lot of passion from the creative team that put into that book. You can tell they, they really care about it. And then I uh, got uh, Hardware from Milestone, issue two. Speaking um, of
1: Sienkiewicz. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Sienkiewicz is inking Dennis, Dennis Cowan's work on this. Nice. And I think the two of them mesh well. Nice.
0: That's
2: awesome. Yeah. Um, for, uh, and I've always liked Dennis Cowan stuff way back when he doing the question. And uh, as far as other artists that I've been really digging, um, Daniel Warren Johnson, like his stuff, uh, more of the Wonder Woman stuff, the Thor
0: stuff, kind of left me left a little bit less des- des- desiring a little more. I, I, I remember didn't... seeing your post about that. I I really liked it. I was like, I like. What's it, he talking I... about? So I went and I picked that issue up. And I'm like i don't agree with him on this one but we all got different <laughs> things but... to the wonder woman stuff oh okay i picked up the first um was it dead world dead dead yeah. dead, dead earth. earth wonder woman dead, dead, dead earth, earth. Yeah. yeah i picked no, up I the first that. one and i liked it a lot um but for whatever reason i i didn't pick up the rest i need to get the rest of those yeah check uh, it out. you do yeah yeah you okay.
1: do okay yeah. Awesome.
0: Yeah. nice cool. Yeah. cool cool um keith <laughs> and where can they find you online
2: Oh, uh, you can find my my comic, The Power available at kid-comics.com. That's k-i-d-hyphen-comics-c-o-m-i-c-s.com. Uh, I'm on all the social the main social media sites: Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. And you see the Kid logo that you see on my cap here. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know you found me. So you just punch in my name, Keith and Jones, or Kid Comics, and when you see that logo, that's me.
1: Cool, Keith. All of it. I'll just do all of it, man, like Keith and yep. did. Social media, you can find me at Keith underscore decibel. I, I'm an Instagram person. Kadoja is at Kadoja Kaiju. And in terms of websites, it's KeithRFoster.com. I've got Kadoja stuff up there. I've got a Kadoja web store and some things like blog posts and other little tidbits for the reading.
0: And wow. you can find my stuff at accidentalaliens.com. Uh second shift, the tale of minimum work minimum wage workers during the day, superheroes at night. Wanderers of Millisonda anthropomorphic dinosaurs versus humans all on X ax- at accidentalaliens.com Jesus I am going all over the place. Keith, what is power nights about before before we leave here? We well, should we should get that out To me
2: it's a story of redemption and choice and, and also a story of choices um, almost uh, the old mantra of the old uh, spider-man mantra of great power comes great responsibility. Uh, in their dimension or their universe, they were known as the Tyrant Knights. They were known as, as, as bad people because they were under this a sorcerer's spell to basically conquer worlds for this malef- male- male- Maleficent, is that the word, mm-hmm. king. And uh, so they did a lot of terrible stuff against their will. Eventually, without giving out spoilers, they the spell was broken, but they were not absolved of their crimes, So they were sentenced to death by being sent into a black hole they ended up going through that black hole into our universe here the milky way universe and now they're on earth free with free will still they still have all their powers and everything intact
0: and but they also remember all the stuff they did cool well then yeah everybody out there that heard that like that go to kid-comics.com pick those books up yep. all right we'll see you guys on the next episode and uh hear